Welcome to Grace on the Go. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go. This episode is a sermon from Sunday, December 13th, 2020 called Rediscover Christmas, Joy in All Circumstances, given by Deacon Aaron Hayes. The scripture passage highlighted for today's sermon comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 12, verse 1. In that day you will say, I will praise you, Lord, although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. So God's grace and his peace and his joy are yours in Jesus Christ, our Lord. There is a sermon outline if you'd like to follow along as I go through that uh, text in Isaiah 12. And I'd like to start off with reminding you of a little bit of history that took place in the late 1980s, and that's the fall of the Berlin Wall. And I was pretty young at the time, so I barely remember this, so I'm not trying to date anybody in here, but I was pretty little. But I do remember this. I remember this event, and I remember my parents talking about this and how big of a deal this really, really was. And my dad, who was a social studies teacher, explaining how this was symbolic of the collapse of communism and the spread of freedom and these sort of things. So I I have these vague uh, recollections of when I was a small boy. But anyway, at the collapse of this wall, and we all remember those images, or if you haven't remembered them, you can see that uh, we've seen them, right, with people chiseling at the wall, just individuals going after this. One famous picture is of an American conductor named Leonard Bernstein, and the reason he was there is he actually performed a concert, and it was in a concert hall right next to the wall. Um, I actually talked to Sandra Dillon, who's one of our professor, well, she's a professor, but she's also our uh, Spanish teacher and our uh, European studies teacher at the high school, and she was there. And she was telling me where this concert took place, because she was a teenager when this took place. And she told me that the concert hall this was was right next door. So that's why they called it the Concert at the Wall. Well, at this concert, they actually performed Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, which is sometimes nicknamed the Ode to Joy. And so this Ode to Joy Symphony is the last movement, the ninth movement, the, the last movement of his Ninth Symphony that has a really famous melody that if you know kind of uh, earlier uh, um, uh, hymns, it's a Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee. Um, if you don't know that, that's fine. It's not a big deal. Just throwing that out there. It's something you might uh, r- uh, snatch onto. But I'm not going to sing it over this microphone because that'd be really awkward. Okay? <laughs> oh, come on. All right. Anyway, pastor's goading me up here in the front row. Uh, but the, the text for this was by a, a German poet named Schiller. And I want you to listen to this text and listen to the expectations that are in this text. Joy, beautiful spark of divinity, daughter of Elysium. We enter, drunk with fire, heavenly one, thy sanctuary. Thy magic binds again what customs strictly divided. All people become brothers where thy gentle wing abides. So there's unification, there's common uh, humanity in joy in this poem. All creatures, not just human beings, drink of joy at nature's breasts. All the just, all the evil, follow her trail of roses. Kisses she gave us, and grapevines, a friend proven in death. Salaciousness was given to the worm, and the cherub, that is an angel, stands before God. And then it continues with, Be embraced, all you millions, this kiss to all the world. Brothers, above the starry canopy, there must dwell a loving father. Are you collapsing millions? Do you sense the creator world? Seek him above the starry canopy. Above stars must he dwell." So that's an English translation of this, but it's an interesting kind of peon to human, uh, uh, human brotherhood and common humanity. And you can see why that would be popular at the fall of the Berlin Wall. This becomes the European national anthem starting in the late 1970s. So it's very symbolic for them to play this with the collapse of communism. Now, at the, at the performance, uh, Bernstein and the performers substituted the word joy with the word freedom interestingly, because now you have freedom of movement and political freedom and economic freedom. But 
it doesn't quite work out that way. And as we see history unfold, even after the fall of the Berlin Wall, it's not the end of the story. It's not just all roses. It's not all just kisses, right, as we move forward. And when Schiller wrote this ode in the 1800s and Beethoven set it to music, if you look at the history of the world, we instead see death and destruction. It's kind of depressing in a way if you look at the history in that, in that sense. In the historical context also, it's interesting. Notice it doesn't say Jesus. It just kind of has a generic creator. So it could be a Jew that could sing this, a Muslim could say this, a Zoroastrian could say this, even a deist who just believes God just kind of wound up the universe and just sat back and said, all right, guys, have fun. That God, somebody who believes that, could actually, in a way, confess this hymn. So it doesn't really have the solution. But I do think it says something about our common humanity, that we're all longing for this inexpressible joy where all the peoples are united, when all cultural barriers are knocked down, and all the things that separate us are removed, and we can all embrace each other. I think we all long for that deeply, and I think this poem connects with us and resonates with us, which is one of the reasons why I think it's so popular. However... What Schiller doesn't include is that the joy that everybody is seeking had already shown up 1,800 years before that. If they would have sought that, it was already there. Um, Isaiah gives us that true expectant joy in chapter 12, which is our main text for today. And so I'm going to start with our first point here, and that it's joy that brings thanksgiving. And I was talking to pastor between the 8 and the 11 services, and he made an interesting point. Translations actually are different on this. And so the NIV and other translations have praise instead of thanksgiving. The ESV and the New American Standard have thanksgiving. So which is it? Well, it's praise that leads to thanksgiving is the answer to this. And so because of the circumstances surrounding Isaiah in this passage, I'm going to contextualize that for you, and I think it'll make sense. And so in Isaiah, as was mentioned in the introduction to the reading, if you start in Isaiah 1 and go to 12, there's a lot of judgment. Now, there's, there's gospel moments Behold, a virgin will conceive. We get that in Isaiah 7. Isaiah 9, we get, you know, wonderful counselor, mighty God. We get this description of who this child is. In Isaiah 11, we get this shoot that comes up from this dead stump. So we get gospel moments. But in terms of just the percentage of text, it's a lot of judgment. Even when Isaiah sees God in in Isaiah 6, and they're singing, holy, 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 and Isaiah's sins are atoned for, the first thing he speaks on his commission is judgment. And so when you think of that, it's what is Isaiah singing about? Well, when we get to Isaiah 11, after Israel has been condemned, after the surrounding nations have been condemned, we get this promise in Isaiah 11 that all the nations are going to go from this righteous branch, this shoot that comes out of a dead stump. All nations. Notice that hope and ode to joy, right? All nations are going to embrace each other. Here it is in Isaiah 11. And so how does Isaiah respond? He responds, and he actually is told that all believers of the remnant of God are going to sing this song, this song that's found in Isaiah 12. So it's a praise that leads to thanksgiving. So this is, I think, highly appropriate for Advent because Isaiah himself did not see this except having this word from God. Um, We are waiting right now for Christ to come again. Remember that theme of Advent, right? That it's not just 2,000 years ago. It's him coming to us now and also coming to us in the second coming. So has God already saved us? The answer is yes. But is God done yet? The answer is no. So we can praise, we can rejoice in thanksgiving because death and destruction and judgment and the law do not have the final word in this. Um, God has already done some stuff on our behalf and we can rejoice for what he's ultimately going to do for us in the future. That's why Isaiah can praise, and when he praises, he gives thanks in spite of the circumstances around him. 
Let's go to the next point here. Um, Robert Louis Stevenson, the author of Treasure Island and Kidnapped. I read both of those as a young boy, I think one in seventh grade and one on my own. Uh, also, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. That's Robert Louis Stevenson. If you don't know that one, that's a, that's a fun one. Um, I, I recommend that one for you. Um, he tells us of a storm um, that caught a vessel off a rocky coast and threatened to drive it and its passengers to destruction. In the midst of the terror, one daring man, contrary to orders, went to the deck and made a dangerous passage to the pilot house and saw the steerman, saw the steerman at his post, holding the wheel unwaveringly, and inch by inch, turning the ship out once more to sea. The pilot saw the watcher and smiled. Then the daring passenger went below and gave out a note of cheer. I have seen the face of the pilot, and he smiled. All is well. That pilot there, the one at the, at the helm, gave a message of comfort, which is what our next point is, is, and that's joy that brings comfort. The passage here says, For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. It would have been tempting, I think, for Isaiah. I'm putting myself in the story here, but I think it would have been tempting for Isaiah and anyone listening to him and the people surrounding him during this or after to feel like God had just kind of given up on Israel. Right? Because Israel had failed over and over and over again. I mean, think about the laundry list of sins that we can come up with Israel. Now, I'm not saying we're that much better, but I'm just saying in terms of history here. For example, false worship, false gods. They're engaging in occultic practices. They were unjust in terms of their government. Um, they were abusing each other. They were sometimes just living as if God didn't matter on their lives. Even though he had done everything for them, they just kind of just forgot about it. It would have been easy for God to just say, I'm done with you, I'm going to start again. And it would have been easy for Isaiah to respond accordingly and said, well, let's just kind of cut our losses and hope that we die soon and not suffer too much, or maybe we should just go along with the rest of the world. But that's not what happens in this passage. Um, God instead says that his anger, which I do want to make be clear here, sometimes when you read the Old Testament, you see the word anger. Some people that, um, especially like atheists and others, will read that and say, God just seems like he's you know, angry and he's you know, just always angry all the time. Remember, God's not a human being like, like us, right? And so when we see that word anger, it's God's righteous indignation towards the way that his world is broken or the way that we break ourselves. It's not because he wants to go zap everybody, okay? So it's, that's, a, that's a mistake when we read that text. And I want to say that when you see that word anger, to remember that it's his just indignation to how his world has been broken. Okay, so as he reacts to that, his anger is actually turned away. That's the other part of this that's often left out in those criticisms. Um, and his remnant is actually comforted here. This sort of comfort is not an elimination of difficulty. Remember, he's not saying that the exile is not going to happen here. Okay, it's not an elimination of difficulty or an easy life. But it's rather assurance that God's promises to his people are certain and true. And as Americans, and I'm confessing this to you myself personally, we struggle with this, especially when we seem to equate material wealth and comfort with God's blessing. That comes all, that goes all the way back, really, you know, to the early uh, years of our country. But that's not always the case. Sometimes people that don't deserve it have wealth, right? And sometimes people that do everything by the book suffer. And so it doesn't always make sense to us. And so it's hard for us as Americans sometimes in a prosperous nation to think this way. We kind of think that good health and great wealth automatically means that God's blessing us. Um, Isaiah is telling us something a lot more profound than this here. Um, it's that death and the law don't get the final word. Right? Because Israel's going under judgment. And so now we have a word from God that this is not the end. 
This may seem kind of trite or simplistic because we say stuff like that a lot around here, but I do want to emphasize the implications as we come to the end of 2020, which has been a really strange year. So if, think about this. If you've lost a loved one this year, and there have been losses here at the church, right? And not just here, among family members. If you've, done, if you've had your sins thrown in your face in the last year, or if you've had some secret addictions or anything that you know that you could be called to account for, it's pretty nice and pretty comforting and pretty awesome that the God of the universe is our salvation. Think some, sometimes how we struggle with... I, I, actually, I'm going to say something personal here. I struggle sometimes personally with my own wife and kids and what's going to happen to them when I'm gone. It's a, it's a, weird, it's a weird thought. You know, I'm, I'm not an old man yet. At least I don't think so. Um, you know, I'm in my mid-30s and I seem to be in relatively good health even though I fight off an infection here and there or whatever. But... In 2020, it's hard not to think that way, right? Because we're surrounded by these stories. And so I wonder what's going to happen with my wife and my kids when I'm gone. I look at the world and the way our culture is headed and the way world history is, is trajectorying and stuff like that. And I just struggle um, sometimes. And I can get fearful worrying about them. Um, I need this reminder from God in this case because God has the last word and that his promises are certain and true. And so I can be comforted that knowing that the faith God created in my wife and in my children is not contingent on me. And that's a good thing. And I sometimes struggle to be comforted on this. I sometimes struggle to have that faith and that peace that comes from this, the joy that comes from God, because... I need that liberating thought. And that's what it should be. It should be liberating. And I think it was liberating for Isaiah to see this, that in the midst of this death and in the midst of this dead stump, there's life. I think that really brought out that praise in him and the people, because at the beginning of this text, it says, you will sing, and that you is not just Isaiah, it's God's people in general. You will say in that day. So that's a comfort that I struggle with, and I think that's a word for all of us here, that only God can do completely that when we are not necessarily having that joy that comes from him, he provides that. So that also brings me to my last point, my next point that kind of connects, and it's that joy that brings trust. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. And that's why I used my own story there as that transition, because I personally sometimes don't always trust at the level I should trust. I'm trying to create all these contingency plans. I'm like, why do I need contingency plans if God's in charge? Right? That's a, that's a struggle that I personally struggle with. I want to give you some data here regarding trust to maybe set this up for you. Um, institutional trust is something that's been studied by uh, Pew and Gallup and these organizations really for the last 30 and 40 years. So I want to give you some of the data involving about 14 institutions that they've always studied. And so this may shock you or it might not shock you. I don't know. This is from 2018, so only two years ago. So Americans trust the military at a rate of 74%. That's not too bad. We tend to trust our people in uniform, I guess. Small businesses, 67%. The police, 54%. And then it really starts dropping. The church or organized religion, 38%. The president and the Supreme Court, 37%. The medical system, 36%. Banks, 30%. Public schools, 29%. Labor unions, 26%. Newspapers, 23%. Criminal justice system, 22%. TV, cable news, 20%. And then finally, Congress, 11%. (laughs) And so that always becomes the brunt of the joke, is that we always start with that one, right? We don't talk about the stuff we trust, and Congress is easy to pick on. And I I said this in the previous service. um, I say this as the government teacher. 
all Americans hate Congress except for their own congressman. That's actually proven in all data. It's interesting. I, like, I don't like anybody else, but I like my guy. It's kind of interesting to think that way. Now, the, when you average all this uh, data together, Americans trust institutions at a rate of about 32%. And remember, this is 2018. How do you think we're doing in December of 2020 with institutional trust? Right? And then we can look at some other data in how Americans don't necessarily trust each other in their own neighborhoods and in other areas. But there are some exceptions to the rule in that relationships, and especially families, are one of the last bastions of hope against this. That this could actually be a moment for the church, actually, if you really truly think about it. And that's a challenge for me and a challenge for you, of course. As, as, as I always say, I'm preaching to myself on this. But how are we doing? It's always worth saying that and checking ourselves in on this. How are we doing when it comes to trust? Have we taken that anxiety, that social anxiety, where we don't trust anything and also don't trust God also? I think if we're honest with each other, we are like that. We turn on the news and we get this overall anxiety, and then we look at our neighbors and we look at people in the store acting one way and other people in the store acting the other way, and we look at that and we're like, man, I can't trust that person, and I can't trust this person, and, I, you know, and we're not very charitable with each other, and then we get this attitude, and then we're no longer also, we find ourselves, maybe even subconsciously, no longer trusting our maker either. And that's, that's a rough word. I mean, how can, how can we do that in this moment? And the answer is, is because what he's already done first. That's one of the things I love about the way we do things in our Lutheran tradition, even though it doesn't sound like there's a Lutheran section in heaven like Pastor Dinger likes to say. But one of the reasons we're neurotic about that God does it first is for things like this. Because if we, was, if we were left to our own devices to come up with enough trust on our own, probably not going to work. And if we're honest with ourselves, we probably have not been trusting God to the level that we should be trusting him. We need God to transform us so that we can trust. And then by trusting in him, we can now build those relationships with each other and actually be able to counter the culture in which we live. Think about how awesome it would be if, if you were an outsider and you came to Grace Lutheran, right, and said, wow, look at how those people trust each other. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing to the culture, to see that? I mean, think about the data that I just read to you. In a culture where nobody trusts anybody or trusts the institutions, they come to Grace Lutheran and say, those people love each other and trust each other because they're united around something. And they're joyful about it too. That would be an amazing thing. Think about Paul. I, I like to use Paul as an example for this because Paul had every reason on his outside circumstance, right, in his outside circumstance to just weep and be depressed and just give up. And yet, in the book of Philippians and in other passages, like 2 Corinthians, in the midst of jail, the apostle Paul is able to rejoice. How is he able to do that? Well, in a way, it sounds kind of trite to say this, but he counts his blessings. He still gets to proclaim, proclaim the gospel. God has saved him when he was actually an adversary against the church, right? He was persecuting. He was killing believers. He was giving approval to the stoning of Stephen, and Jesus calls him out for it. And so Paul, in the midst of these circumstances, can say, I'm going to rejoice. He calls it the joy of faith or joy in the Lord. It shows that God is with him even in the midst of those circumstances. In fact, one of the, in fact joy is one of the main themes of that book. He also writes to the Corinthians, uh, in 2 Corinthians, this following quote. And I love this. I, had to, I really kind of mold on this as I was preparing for today. It starts in, I think it's 2 Corinthians 6. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. 
Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots. And he goes on a list here, sleepless nights, hunger. He's listing all the stuff that they've had to put up with with their circumstances. He later on says, starting in verse 9, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed. And this is key, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. Notice that he says he's sorrowful and rejoicing at the same time. And that's the sort of rejoice that comes from a trust in God that only he can give. Because if I was left to my own devices, I would not be rejoicing in my sorrows. Right? I would be depressed. I'd be angry, maybe. I would be um, in denial. There's all these different things that you could actually respond to. But Paul, in these circumstances, even though he might weep for those who have, he has lost, even though he weeps for those who have gone before him, and even he has a thorn in his flesh that he complains about in other passages, he's still rejoicing. Um, notice that uh, he also says that, uh, that actually, I'm going to say Paul, forgive me here, um, that C.S. Lewis has some stu- stuff to say on this. He has a book called The Weight of Glory. And in this book, he talks about how we as Christians and we as human beings are sometimes far too easily pleased with just the simple stuff of this world when we've been promised even more joyful things later. And that's one of the things Paul is talking about here. He, can, he knows what the final destination is. He knows why he's running that race so he can rejoice. That's what true rejoicing is about. It's that trust in God's promises that God is certain in what he's going to do. This is what C.S. Lewis says in The Weight of Glory. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I love that quote, because I think that kind of can steal our joy a little bit when we're too concerned about these things, or we're too easily pleased with the stuff that's offered in this world. But if our focus is on what God has already done for us and his certain promises, there's a joy there that cuts through those circumstances. Our joy is not defined by our struggles or circumstances, but by our future destiny. And so the way we say that, and you can see that on your outline there or on your screen, remember joy is an attitude springing from hope in God's love and promise. It is not from us. It is from our buffs. It's from above. And so on Gaudete Sunday, on Joy Sunday, I hope that you can be joyful in the promises that God has given to you. Amen. If you have any questions or comments, email them to podcast at gracepocatello.org. And make sure to subscribe to our channel to stay up to date on sermons and classes at Grace Lutheran Church in Pocatello, Idaho. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go.